turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 5, though we're not going to spend a lot of time there. We will be all over the place this morning. What I'm going to do this morning is answer some questions, or actually one question, from the Bible, why we don't worship on Saturday, why the Sabbath is not for believers today. I've had three people uh, from this congregation ask me about the Sabbath, and I think it's a question that does nag at people. Because we really can't, let me rephrase that, most people cannot prove from the scriptures that the Sabbath is not for believers today. But years ago when I began to study Matthew chapter 5 verses 17 and 18, it hit me that Christ fulfilled the Sabbath. And that's what I'm going to prove from the scriptures this morning. And hence, what Christ has carried out, what he has fulfilled, such as being our Passover lamb, is not something that we need to do today. And I am going to uh, borrow from an article that I found that states the points that I wanted to bring out this morning, but he does... He says it a lot better than I can. And so I'm going to read from this article uh, extensively. I'll probably read the whole article and then make some stops along the way as we go through it. And I'll let you know when I'm reading from it. Uh, this article uh, can be found on the Desiring God website, and it is by Scott Hubbard. I would suggest that you take some notes because... There is a movement today of people who are trying to draw Christian people, trying to draw believers back into meeting on Saturday, back into obeying the food restrictions that were given to the nation of Israel. In fact, the church that I pastored in Illinois has become what is called a messianic congregation. And I had talked to one of my good friends who no longer attends that church. He says, yeah, they think they're Jewish. So I had to do some digging as to what was going on. And two of the big things that they are calling believers back to is worshiping on Saturday. So you need to know why you don't do that. And bringing Christian people so we're not offensive to the Jews, especially if we're trying to reach them with the gospel, trying to bring Christian people back under the food restrictions as given in the Old Testament law. So now my goal is to, by the quarter after 12, is to get through uh, this article and the verses that I want to share about why we don't worship on Saturday. But I'm going to start in a different location, and that is... What has been fulfilled by Christ specifically 
What parts of the Old Testament have been fulfilled? And I want to bring out two of them. One will be the food restrictions. But I mentioned it briefly last week, and I don't think we understand the implications of this. And that is that Christ has become our veil of the temple. Everything related to the temple, its worship, its sacrifices, has been fulfilled or carried out by Christ. And, and that was proven when he died on the cross. The veil, according to Matthew 27, 51, was torn in two from the top to the bottom. What was the veil of the temple protecting? What was it protecting? The Holy of Holies, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, where the high priest could only go in once a year on the Day of Atonement and atone for the sins of the nation of Israel. And when Christ died on the cross, that veil was rent in two because the way into the presence of God is now through Jesus, not the sacrifices. And we can all say amen to that, but let's turn to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 13 to 18. Paul is talking about the Gentiles. He says, but now in Christ Jesus, ye who once were far off are made near by the blood of Christ, for he is our peace, who hath made both one hath broken down the middle wall of partition between us, having abolished in his flesh the enmity, even the law of commandments contained in ordinances, to make in himself of two, Jew and Gentile, one new man, so making peace, and that he might reconcile both unto God in one body by the cross, having slain the enmity thereby, and came and preached peace to you who were far off and to them who were near. Now notice this, verse 18. For through him, who's the him? Christ, for through him we both have access by one spirit unto the Father. Now if that does not thrill your heart, that we don't have to watch a high priest go into the Holy of Holies for us, we can by reading the word and by prayer come into the very presence of God himself. Hebrews chapter 6, verse 19. Hebrews chapter 6. That wasn't my heart. <laughs> Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 19. Which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and notice this, and which entereth into that within the veil. And that hope is Christ. He carried it out. He died on the cross, providing a new and living way for us. Look at Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. Hebrews chapter 10, verses 19 to 22. And I do hope you're taking notes. I'm going to throw a lot of verses at you. But this will hopefully solidify in your thinking. 
why we are not under the law for salvation, why we are not worshiping on Sunday, I mean on Saturday. Hebrews 10, verses 19 to 22, having therefore, brethren, boldness, underline that word boldness, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and full assurance of faith. Now think about the implications of Jesus Christ being our veil, rent and torn and broken for us, so that we can enter into the Holy of Holies. What does that do to the entire Jewish system of worship and sacrifice? It all comes down, folks. All of it. Okay, number two, food restrictions. We'll start in Mark chapter 7 and verse 19. We'll start in verse 14. And when he had called all the people unto him, he said unto them, Hearken unto me, every one of you, and understand, there is nothing from outside of a man that entering into him can defile him, but the things which come out of him, those are they that defile the man. If any man have ears to hear, let him hear. When he was entered into the house from the people, his disciples asked him concerning the parable. He said to them, Are ye so without understanding also? Do ye not perceive that whatever thing from outside entereth into the man, it cannot defile him, because it entereth not into his heart, but into the stomach, and goeth out into the draught, purging all foods. Who has an ESV? Matt, verse 19, what's it say? He declares all foods clean. Why? Because we're going to find out, according to Acts 11, verses 7 through 9, Jesus, or Peter has a vision. And in, uh, let's turn there, Acts chapter 11, verses 7 to 9. Acts 11, 7 through 9. Peter's about to go and preach the gospel basically for the first time to Gentiles. And in Acts chapter 11, he's up on a rooftop and he has this vision. It's a great sheet. And in that sheet are all sorts of different kinds of animals, clean and unclean. Remember, Peter's Jewish. Remember also Peter had some disagreement with Paul over some of these issues. But here, Peter is going to be taught by God that those restrictions pictured something. And here we are in Acts 11. I heard a voice saying unto me, Arise, Peter, slay and eat. Peter, being the good Jewish man that he was, not so, Lord, for nothing common or unclean hath at any time entered my mouth. What he was saying is, I've obeyed those food restrictions. I've only eaten clean animals. But the voice answered me in verse 9, What God hath cleansed, that call not though thou common. And that thing was done three times. In other words, it was pretty important. After the last 
time that this sheet went up, there's a knock on the door. We're looking for Peter. And the Holy Spirit told Peter, I want you to go with these people and ask no questions. And so Peter goes. And he finds him in the house, finds himself in the house uh, of Gentiles. And the Lord taught him, let's uh, go to 13, verse 13, uh, no, verse 12. And the Spirit bade me go with them, nothing doubting. Moreover, these six brethren accompanied me, and we entered into the man's house. And he showed us how he had seen an angel in his house who stood and, and said unto him, Send men to Joppa and call for Simon, whose surname is Peter, who shall tell thee words by which thou shalt and all thy house shall be saved. And I began to speak. The Holy Spirit fell on them as in at the beginning. Then remembered I the word of the Lord. John indeed baptized with water, but ye shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit. So in other words, Peter is recounting here when he was originally sent. And I'm looking for uh, chapter 10, verse 23. Then called he them in and lodged them. And on the next day, Peter went away with them. Certain brethren from Joppa accompanied him, and the next day after they entered into Caesarea, and Cornelius waited for them and called together his kinsmen and their friends, and brought a bunch of a whole group together. And as Peter was coming in, Cornelius met him and fell down at his feet and worshipped him. But Peter took him up, saying, Stand up, I myself am also a man. And he talked with him. He went in and found many that were gathered together. He says, Why did you bring me here? Don't you know it's unlawful for a man that is a Jew to keep company with another nation? Verse 28, but God hath shown me that I should not call any man common or unclean. Peter learned his lesson, and he found out and knew then what the food restrictions were actually teaching, and that is that one day Gentiles were going to be saved. And so Jesus in Mark 7 he basically cleanses all foods because now the gospel is not just for who? Not just the Jew only. It's for Gentiles as well. Am I making any sense here? So the food restrictions are now fulfilled and carried out in Christ. There's also Romans 14, verses 14 and 20 you can go to, as well as 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 5. Paul is saying in the latter days, people are going to say, you know, don't eat this, don't eat that. And Paul said, no, that's, let me read it to you. Paul basically says that all foods are clean. 1 Timothy chapter 4, verses 1 through 5. Now the Spirit speaketh expressly in the latter times. Some shall depart from the faith, giving heed to seducing spirits and doctrines of demons, speaking lies and hypocrisy, having their conscience seared with the hot iron, forbidding to marry, and commanding to abstain from foods, which God hath created to be received with thanksgiving by them who believe and know the truth. Verse 4, for every creature of God is good. For Paul, a Jew, to say that is unthinkable. But he understood that those pointed to Christ in some way, the food restrictions, and they have now been fulfilled in Christ. Nothing is to be refused if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is sanctified by the word of God in prayer. And so the veil of the temple, showing that the Jewish way of worship and sacrifices is done in Christ. The food restrictions 
now done in Christ, fulfilled in Gentiles being saved. Don't call anybody common or unclean. And then may I direct your attention to Acts chapter 15, verses 20 to 29. You will recognize this as the Jerusalem Council. Some people from a certain area were trying to teach the Gentiles that they needed to keep the law. They sent some folks to Jerusalem. We've got to settle this matter. And in Acts chapter 15, verses 20 to 29, they come to the conclusion that no, Gentiles are not under the law, but that we write unto them that they abstain from pollutions of idols, from fornication, from things strangled, and from blood. Now, if there was ever a time to include the Sabbath day, in a list of things that the Gentiles should obey, this would be it. But notice, it's not there. What they list are some of the things that are very offensive to Jewish people. Now, what was the Sabbath? Let me do some reading from this article. Of the Ten Commandments that God gave to Israel, perhaps none has provoked more controversy and debate than the fourth. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, Exodus 20 and verse 8. Does the Sabbath commandment still hold today? None of those who answer in the negative suggest the Sabbath was a second-tier command in the Decalogue. A good idea, but not mandatory. Nobody would say that. No, the Sabbath served, get this, the Sabbath served as the covenant sign between Israel and her God so that it unfolded a weekly drama that testified to God as mighty creator, Exodus 20 and verse 11, and merciful redeemer, Deuteronomy 5.15. So God links both the fact that he's creator to the keeping of the Sabbath, and that he rescued the children of Israel out of Egypt to the Sabbath. So in other words, the Sabbath, by that time, under the law of Moses, became a covenant sign between God and his people. So on the Sabbath, Israel declared total dependence on her covenant Lord, a Lord more than able to uphold his people, even though for one day in seven, they hung up their shovels, laid aside their plows, and rested from their labors. In other words, it is, if you observe the Sabbath, I mean, think about when you have a day off. You think about all those things you could or should be doing, right? But to take one day off, especially in an agricultural society, uh, I think about a friend who still had to feed the cows on Sunday morning before he came to church. He kept it limited, but he still had to do that. They were depending upon God to meet their needs, even though they took one day where they did not engage in that kind of labor. So the question then, and I'm reading again from the article, is not whether Israel should have kept the Sabbath under the Old Covenant, but whether Christians should keep the Sabbath under the new covenant. Should Christians keep the Sabbath? 
The question may sound nonsensical to some. We keep commandments one, two, and three, and then five to ten, don't we? Well, why should we skip number four? And hence, I think that's why people are asking me the question, what about the Sabbath? Yet strewn throughout the New Testament is telling evidence that in Christ and the New Covenant, the Sabbath has found its fulfillment. Now, let me give you point number one, why we do not observe the Sabbath. Out of all the Ten Commandments, nine of them are repeated in the New Testament. The one that's not repeated is what? Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Let me give you some verses. I'll go through this rather quickly. Mark chapter 10, verses 17 to 19. Romans 13, 9. 1 Timothy 1, 8 to 10. Just general verses. But let me give you one specific for each commandment. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. 1 Corinthians 8, 6. And 1 Timothy 2, 5. Don't have any idols. 1 John 5, 21. Don't take the Lord's name in vain, 1 Timothy 6, 1. Honor your father and your mother, Ephesians 6, 1 and 2. Thou shalt not kill, Romans 13, 9, 1 Peter 4, 15. Thou shalt not commit adultery, 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 10. Thou shalt not steal, Ephesians 4, 28. Thou shalt not bear false witness, Revelation 21, 8. No coveting, Colossians 3, 5. And so every one of the Ten Commandments, except remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy, is repeated in the New Testament. Now, that doesn't mean the Sabbath is not talked about. We're going to look at some verses. But how is it talked about? It's not mentioned in a way where Paul or any other writer is saying believers need to keep the Sabbath. It's not mentioned that way. In fact, let's take a look at Matthew chapter 12. And this is where it gets really excited, Stephen, because this is what really, I, I really get excited about it. In Matthew chapter 12, we have, um, let me read just a little bit here. Readers of the gospel soon discovered just how crucial the Sabbath was to the Jews of Jesus' day. The seventh day marks the setting of so many clashes between Jesus and the Pharisees that when we read something like, now it was a Sabbath day, we expect trouble. Matthew chapter 12. At that time, Jesus went on the Sabbath day through the grain fields. And his disciples were hungry and began to pluck the, the ears of grain and to eat. But when the Pharisees saw it, they said unto him, Behold, thy disciples do that which is not lawful to do upon the Sabbath day. Now, if you go through the Old Testament law, you will not find where it says they couldn't do what they were doing. They were breaking an oral tradition, but not the law of Moses. But he said unto them, Have ye not read what David did when he was hungry and they that were with him? How he entered into the house of God and did eat the showbread, which was not lawful for him to eat, neither for them who were with him, but only for the priests? Or have you not read in the law how that on the Sabbath days the priests in the temple profane the Sabbath and are blameless? But I say unto you that in this place is one greater than the temple, and hence greater than the Sabbath, but if you had known what this meaneth, I will have mercy and not sacrifice, you would not have condemned the guiltless. Now notice verse 8. For the Son of Man is Lord even of what? The Sabbath day. 
Now, it's unfortunate that we have chapter divisions in our New Testament. Look at the end of chapter 11, starting in verse 28. Jesus says primarily to all those about him who are Jewish people, Come unto me, all ye that labor and are heavy laden, and I will what? I'm going to give you rest. Forget about the Sabbath day rest. I'm going to give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn of me, for I am meek and lowly in heart, and ye shall find rest unto your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And then, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Matthew records two Sabbath day or a Sabbath day controversy right there. Now, to add some information for you about Matthew eleven twenty eight to 30, the word rest that is used there is a Greek word that is used in the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew scriptures. That word rest is the same word that is used to translate the word, did you get it? Sabbath. And what Matthew, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is showing us by ordering his gospel the way that he has, as God wanted it, that Jesus is the Lord of the Sabbath. He's the one who is now going to give us rest. Take a look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. Uh, Let me read what this guy says on this. Strictly speaking, the only commandments Jesus broke on the Sabbath belonged to Jewish tradition, not divine law. In their zeal to define exactly what a person could and could not do on the Sabbath, Jewish leaders laid on the people's backs a spiritual burden heavier than any physical burden, Matthew 23, 4. Jesus attacked such traditions with the vehemence of one who saw more clearly than any that the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. Yet even though Jesus never broke the fourth commandment, he did hint that a change to the Sabbath may be coming. If we could remove the chapter break between Matthew 11 and 12, we might notice in the context immediately preceding the Sabbath controversies in Matthew 12, 1 through 14, these arresting words, Come to me, all ye who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. The rest offered on the Sabbath was now being offered in Christ. A grand claim lies behind this grand promise. The Son of Man is Lord also of the Sabbath. D.A. Carson said in his book, From Sabbath to the Lord's Day, page 66, that Jesus Christ is Lord of the Sabbath is not only a messianic claim of grand proportions, but it raises the possibility of a future change or reinterpretation of the Sabbath in precisely the same way that his professed superiority over the temple raises certain possibilities about ritual law. In Jesus, something greater than the Sabbath is here. Take a look at Luke chapter 4 and verse 18. And the approach that I'm taking with you is to show how Jesus has fulfilled the Sabbath 
And anything that he has carried out on our behalf is something that we no longer are subject to. Do you agree with that? Luke chapter 4, verse 18. We've looked at this verse already in a different way. But notice, Jesus goes into the synagogue, and he gets the scroll. He opens to the place where it is written, verse 18, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He hath sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to preach deliverance to the captives, and recovering of sight to the blind, and to set at liberty them that are bruised, to preach the acceptable year of the Lord. Anybody got your ESV? Who's got their ESV? What's the ending? What's um, verse 19 say? The, The year of the Lord's favor. The language that is being used here in this verse, a quotation from Isaiah 61, verses 1 and 2, is the language of the year of Jubilee. What is the year of Jubilee? It was a a Sabbath year, but it was the Sabbath of all Sabbath years. It happened every 50 years. Every seven years was a Sabbath year, but they were supposed to count and get to this 50th one, and it's called the year of Jubilee. You know what happened on the year of Jubilee? All captives and slaves were set free. Land was returned to its original owner. And notice what Jesus said here in verse 21. This day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. Now we've got the Sabbath day once a week. We've got the Sabbath year once every seven years. And then we've got the Sabbath of all Sabbaths, the year of Jubilee. And Jesus just said, this day, the scripture is being fulfilled in your ears. In other words, it pointed to something. It was a shadow, and now the substance is here. And what is this? That those who are bound in sin can be freed. Amen. Did Jesus fulfill what pointed to him? Did he carry out what pointed to him? This alone tells me that the Sabbath is not for today because Jesus carried it out. In fact, that word liberty there to preach uh, deliverance, actually the word liberty is, uh, yeah, verse 18, to, to set at liberty them that are bruised. It was a technical phrase that was used in the language there in Deuteronomy or Leviticus, I think it's 25, of the year of Jubilee. Jesus fulfills the year of Jubilee, the Sabbath of all Sabbaths. Now let's turn to Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. And I think this one makes it very, very clear. I'm reading from the article again. Two passages in particular from the Apostle Paul spell out the implications of Jesus' lordship over the Sabbath. The first is Colossians 2, 16 and 17. Let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink. That's the food restrictions that we were talking about. Or with regard to a festival or a new moon or a what? Sabbath. These are a what? 
shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Now here is Paul, a Jewish man, claiming that the Sabbath was a a shadow of things to come. And what Paul says here is remarkable. I'm reading the article again. Tom Schreiner writes, For he lumps the Sabbath together with food laws, festivals like the Passover, and new moons. All of these constitute shadows that anticipate the coming of Christ. And since Christ has now come, observing the Sabbath is no longer a matter of obedience or disobedience. Rather, Paul says, let no one pass judgment on you. Now, if you want to keep the Sabbath, go ahead. But don't require me to keep the Sabbath. Or don't require keeping the Sabbath for salvation. Or don't require circumcision and the keeping of the Sabbath to become a Jew before you can be saved. Paul says that can't happen. Now turn, if you would, to Romans chapter 14. Actually, stay in Colossians. I should read the verse. I should have read these before. Colossians 2.14. Paul says that Jesus Christ blotted out the handwritings of ordinances that was against us, which was contrary to us, and took it out of the way, nailing it to his cross. And having spoiled principalities and powers, he made a show of them openly, triumphing over them in it. Then he says, let no man therefore. Why is that word therefore there? We'll look in the previous verses to see what it's there for. Okay. All that's been nailed to the cross. Romans 14, if you would please. Romans 14 is an interesting chapter because Paul is discussing two groups of people, the strong and the weak. Romans 14.5 holds a similarly striking claim. Consider Paul's words here alongside a typical Old Covenant statement about the Sabbath, and this is found in Exodus 31.14. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. That's God's word, Exodus 31.14. It applied under the Old Covenant to the Sabbath day. Now look at verse 5. One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Let me read from the article again. If an old covenant Israelite esteemed all days alike, he would be stoned to death. Yet Paul evidently felt no need to impose the Sabbath command on his Gentile converts. Some in Rome, it seems, wanted to keep the Sabbath and so esteem one day as better than another. Perhaps Jewish Christians eager to maintain the traditions of their fathers... Uh, Paul had no issue with those Christians so long as they refrained from pressuring others to imitate them or suggested that salvation hinged on obedience to the Sabbath. For the sake of Christian freedom and mutual love, Paul says simply and remarkably, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. Paul aligns himself with the strong after going through all of this, and he, he basically begins to talk primarily about the food laws. But in chapter 15, we then that are strong ought to bear the infirmities of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let every one of us please his neighbor for his good to, re- to edification. For even Christ pleased not himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of them that reproach thee fell on me. 
Basically, he's saying, don't offend the weak believers with your position. But he's also telling the weak believers, don't impose what you think is right on us. And you can read chapter 14, but the important thing here is how Paul refers to the Sabbath day. If you want to esteem it as a day to be held, go ahead. If you don't want to esteem it as a day to be held, that's okay too. Hebrews chapter 4, if you would please. And in my discussions with various people about the idea of the Sabbath, I tried to refer you to Hebrews 4 because I really believe Hebrews 4 settles it for us. If you're not settled in your mind already. The author of Hebrews brings us closer to the heart of why the new covenant does not require a literal seventh day rest. Christ's first coming did not abolish rest, rather it ushered in a deeper kind of rest than the Sabbath could ever offer. And we're talking about a rest for our souls, Matthew 11, verses 28 to 30. According to Hebrews 4, Israel's Sabbath day always pointed forward to a far greater day, the still future day when all creation will enter fully into that rest, foreshadowed and promised in Genesis 2, 2 through 3 the very first seventh day. Let's read Hebrews 4 so we can get it in our mind before I continue. Let us therefore fear lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them, but the word preached did not profit them, not being mixed with faith in them who heard it. For we who have believed do enter into rest, as he said, as I have sworn in my wrath that they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. For he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day in this way, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. So if there's any question about the seventh day Sabbath being under consideration here, that should settle it right there. That's the topic. That's what we're talking about. And in this place again, if they shall enter into my rest, seeing therefore it remaineth that some must enter into it, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limited a certain day, saying, And David, today, after so long a time, as it is said, today, if you hear his voice, harden not your hearts. For if Joshua had given them rest, then he would not afterward have spoken uh, of another day. There remaineth therefore a rest to the people of God. For he that has entered into his rest, he also hath ceased from his own works, as God did from his. Now, what works do we cease from now that we've entered into the rest of Jesus Christ? What works? For salvation, right? And that's what we're talking about here. Let us labor, therefore, to enter into that rest. So the, the key about chapter 4 of the book of Hebrews is we have entered that rest, but not yet fully. It's the same truth of the kingdom of God, already but not yet. Let me read this article again. According to Hebrews 4, Israel's Sabbath day always pointed forward to a far greater day, the still future day when all creation will enter fully into that rest, foreshadowed and promised in Genesis 2, 2 through 3. The very first seventh, uh, Sabbath day. So then, there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God, verse 9 of chapter 4. The ultimate Sabbath rest is coming. It is coming. 
when God's people will enjoy work without toil, hearts without sin, and an earth without thorns. Yet even now, Hebrews implies, chapter 4, we feel the first waves of that coming rest. In Christ, we, according to Hebrews 6, 5, have already tasted the powers of the age to come. Rest included. For the author writes, we who have believed enter that rest. Look at verse 3 of chapter 4. For we who have believed do enter into rest. Is that future or present? That's present tense. We have already entered that rest. Not one day we'll enter. We will fully enter it later, but it is true of us right now. How do we enter that rest? Not mainly by putting aside our weekly labors for one day in seven, but by by believing. We who have believed enter that rest. Faith in Jesus Christ brings the rest of the seventh day into every day, he says in this article. So we've looked at Matthew 11 and 12, good arguments as to why the Sabbath is no longer for today because we have come unto Christ. We have labored. We're heavy laden. We've come unto Christ, and he has released us of our burden of sin. He has freed us from the entanglements of sin, and we have entered into the rest that he offers, a rest that was foreshadowed by the Sabbath day in the Old Testament. We looked at Colossians chapter 2, which says that the Sabbath day was what? A shadow, and now the substance is here in Christ. And we looked at Uh, Romans 14, Paul is saying, look, if you want to... Now, understand uh, that the early church was comprised mainly of Jewish people. And it was hard for them to leave their traditions and their religion behind. So much so that the book of Hebrews is written because Jewish people were going back from Christ to the old sacrificial system. And it was hard to let go of that. My reading of history, the early Jewish Christians observed the Sabbath as well as the first day of the week, which became to be known as the Lord's Day, Sunday. They did both. As the the church became more Gentile, We didn't have so much the controversies that are talked about in Romans chapter 14. Let me go on in this article because it, it really gets good. Of course, when Christians today speak of the Sabbath, they almost never mean the seventh day, but the first day. Not Saturday, but Sunday. But surprisingly, no New Testament writer ever refers to Sunday as the Sabbath. You can't find it in the church fathers. You can't find, excuse me, in the New Testament. When Jewish and perhaps some Gentile Christians observed the Sabbath, they would have done so on what day? Saturday. Christians 
Uh, they would have done so on Saturday, as Israel had done for centuries. But that doesn't mean Sunday held no special place in the early church. Scripture suggests that it did, only under a different name, the Lord's Day. The phrase, the Lord's Day, appears only in Revelation, where the Apostle John writes, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's Day, Revelation 1.10. But other passages suggest that the Lord's Day simply put a name on the church's common practice of gathering on Sunday. In Ephesus, Paul met with the church on the first day of the week to break bread, Acts 20 and verse 7. Likewise, Paul instructed the Corinthians to set aside some money on the first day of the week, 1 Corinthians 16.2. So it was their practice to meet on Sunday, the Lord's Day. Now, none of these passages shows us the early church resting as if they considered Sunday their new Sabbath. Richard Bachman goes so far as to write, for the earliest Christians, it was not a substitute for the Sabbath. That's important to realize Christians did not substitute Sunday for the Sabbath, uh, nor a day of rest, nor related in any way to the fourth commandment. The majority of these early Christians likely needed to work on the first day of the week. Sunday was declared an official day of rest throughout the Roman Empire only under Constantine in A.D. 321. The passages do suggest, however, that Christians worshipped on the Lord's day. Perhaps in the morning, before work, perhaps in the evening, afterward, the first believers gathered to praise the one who rose. Here's, here's why it became known as the Lord's Day. Very early on the first day of the week. We worship on Sunday, on the Lord's Day, because Jesus Christ rose from the dead on the first day of the week. So when that stone rolled away from Jesus' tomb on Easter morning, true Sabbath rest arrived and a new day had dawned. See, I told you he could say it a lot better than I could say it. So should Christians keep the Sabbath? In one sense, no. Under the new covenant, no Christian is bound to the fourth commandment as such. We may still decide to rest one day in seven, and indeed wisdom seems to support the practice of imitating God's own six-in-one pattern, Genesis 1-1 through Genesis 2-3, especially in a day when many can work anytime, anywhere, answering emails after dinner, taking calls on the weekend. We may do well, even for one day in seven, to say, I worked yesterday, I will work tomorrow, but today I rest and worship. In another sense, however, Christians should keep the Sabbath always. And here we do find a connection between the Jewish Sabbath and the Christian Lord's Day. Andrew Lincoln writes, in the Old Testament, the literal Physical rest of the Sabbath pointed to future rest. But since Christ has brought fulfillment in terms of salvation rest, and boy, I love that phrase, salvation rest. It is the present enjoyment of this rest that acts as the foretaste of the, cons uh, yeah, the consummation rest which is to come. In other words, it is the celebration on the Lord's day of the rest we already have through Christ's resurrection that now anticipates and guarantees the rest that is yet to be. That is incredible. Every Lord's Day we come again to Jesus, weary and heavy laden. We trace the shadow of the Sabbath to its substance, Colossians 2.17. 
We hear again in the distance the sounds of that future Sabbath festival. We glimpse again by faith the glow of innumerable angels in festal gathering. We look again into the empty tomb and we hear Christ say, Peace to you. In other words, we find rest, the kind of rest that remains long after Sunday has passed. Without regularly experiencing this kind of rest and without special power every Lord's Day, it matters little how much rest we give our bodies. Our rest will be restless, and our work will become a desperate attempt to secure for ourselves the rest that we have not found in Christ. Neither the sluggard, who works for the weekend, nor the workaholic, who has no weekend, has yet learned to enjoy the rest of the true Sabbath, meaning the one that is found in Christ. Not so with those who have heard and heeded Jesus' invitation to take my yoke upon you, and ye will find rest for your souls. The world and the devil would have us work even while we rest, but Jesus would have us rest even while we work. And here, in this Christ-saturated resting and working, we live out the Sabbath day today. Isn't that good? Christ has fulfilled the Sabbath day for us. And if you want to read this article, it's on Desiring God uh, website by Scott Hubbard. It's called, Should Christians Keep the Sabbath? I'd establish most of these points before reading this article, but again, he said it in such a way that it's, it's, it's better than I could ever say it. Should we observe the Sabbath? Well, you can if you want, and that's Paul's point in Romans 14. If you want to esteem that day better than any other day, go ahead. Don't require others to do it. Don't require it for salvation. But if you want to observe it, go ahead. And for those who know that the Sabbath has been fulfilled in Christ, don't judge that person because they're doing it. Okay, And so he settles that for us in Romans 14. Amen? Any questions? I don't normally take questions, but this was a tough topic to, to tackle. Any questions? I hope that all of us have found rest unto our souls in Christ Jesus, because he has fulfilled the Sabbath for us. Father, thank you for the rest that you give, and thank you for how you take care of us and giving us rest for our weary souls. And thank you for freeing us from the entanglement and bondage of sin and fulfilling the year of jubilee in us as well. Thank you for all that you do for us. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.